this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're kicking off a new roundtable series. Oh, you, yeah? What is it? Are you excited? I hope I prepare for the right show. I hope so, too. You didn't You didn't review <laughs> Motley Crue's Generation Swine, did you? I jumped the gun on that one. Yeah, you did. That's all right. Slack. Uh, no, what we're doing is, this is an idea uh, we had at the beginning of the year when we were trying to figure out what roundtables we wanted to do and try to create series so that we could go back to the same idea a couple times a year and do them year after year. Um, we were, were doing the Dig In Your Scene where we're going to check out different cities around the world and what was going on in their music scene in the 90s. And then another idea that we had uh, was we wanted to go back and look at the sophomore albums of bands that had successful debut records in the 90s. And what we define as successful is it had to be at least a gold record. So that's 500,000 copies, half a million records mm-hmm. were sold. In some cases, we're going to be talking about a lot more than that. We're going to be talking about millions of albums sold. But that's our that's our our bottom line is you got to have a gold record on the on the debut. And our, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit when we did the Kevin Martin interview of Candlebox. He kind of uh, gave us the inside story on on their sophomore slump with Lucy yep. and and the difficulties that they had getting into the studio and recording and writing and tensions within the band so it was it was kind of the the primer for this what we're calling the sophomore slump revisited cool yeah i'm ready all right um of course we can't do this alone we have to have many voices chiming in with their expertise and uh to help us do the inaugural sophomore slump revisited we have a, a pair of gentlemen who have joined us before from the great state of florida the tallahassee area uh, proprietor of the Rocket Fuel podcast and writer for Punktastic dot com, Mr. Jeff Takis. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. And joining us from the, uh, the state of Ohio, the writer for such uh, publications as Moo, The Lantern, uh, the. What was the other one? Independent? Is that the other one? That's, that's it, yeah. Yes. And then you might also know him from a little website called kidsinterviewbands.com. And also a writer for uh, Swizzle Stick when that was and around. Pulling out all the old ones. And uh, do you still write for Big Takeover? Do you still do I stuff? Do. Excellent. I do. Probably the finest uh, print publication in terms of uh, new independent and alternative music out there is that a quarterly it's a uh, twice a year twice a year okay new issue coming out in may i think excellent chip midnight's back i am back you are back and so Thank gentlemen we are we're happy to have you and we are happy to be talking about since it's been 20 years we thought 1996 is the year to go with and we're going to be talking about on this first episode the second album from sponge Wax Ecstatic, which came out in 1996, was actually released um, 
July 2nd of 1996. So let's talk about our own histories with this band to, to start out with. I'm curious um, if you guys were fans of the band back in the 90s or if this was a band that you ignored or, or didn't like. Um, if you uh, went see, saw them at any shows, that sort of stuff. Chip, I'm going to start with you. What's your history with uh, Sponge? So, nine, what, what year did the first album come out? 94? Okay, so pre-first album coming out, um, I was already out of college, about a year out, and had become good friends with the local Sony college rep, Andy Flick. So Andy used to call me up, and uh, I think I was like waiting tables at the time, so you know I could uh, I could just hop in a car at any given point and drive to Cleveland or Cincinnati. But he calls me up and he says, uh, "We're working a new band, and they're called Sponge, and they're playing at Sudsy Malone's in Cincinnati." I don't know if you guys ever you guys ever go there. I walked past it, never been there. So kind of the claim to fame, if there was a claim to fame, is that it was a laundromat slash concert venue. Mm-hmm. And it was right across the street from Bogarts, which is like the 1,500, 1,800 seat place in Cincinnati, near the University of Cincinnati campus. Anyway, go down with Andy, know nothing about this band. Um, that's a long time ago, so I don't remember how he sold me on going, but probably uh, mentioned that they were some somewhat of a grunge band or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, get down there. And like I said, it was, it was before the first album came out. Um, I think they were just out on the road for a little while, just doing some getting their legs wet on touring. Um, go to see this band. There was probably like six people there. Uh, <laughs> the things that I remember about that show, though, is that like um, at one point, Vinny, the singer, th- there was a girl getting up, and I think she was like go- either leaving or walking over. There was a payphone by the front door, which, again, tells you kind of how old we're talking. And uh, he, he tells her, like, he stops the song, and he's like, hey, call your friends and tell them to come down. They can get in for free. Just, so the band stops playing while this girl gets on the, on the payphone and calls, I guess, a roommate or friends or whatever. Um, and then the band picks back up. But, uh, but I, you know, I thought they were pretty good. Um, and then, again, this was a long time ago, and probably many beers drank that night. Um, but I guess a week or two later... Uh, I got a, a handwritten letter in the mail um, that included a single, uh, whatever the first single from Rotting Pinata was, um, and a handwritten note from Vinny thanking me f- for coming to the show, um, hoping that I like the music, and hoping that someday I would write about them. So, uh, wow, that was the only time I've ever seen him, though. <laughs> Other than I did see him on that um, the Ever Everclear Summerland tour a couple years ago. Okay. When um, when the second album come out came out, did you was it something you purchased or was it something you picked up in a used bin or? Um, it was probably something that, like you mentioned, I was writing for uh, Moo Magazine at the time, which was a Midwest publication, um, free kind of newspaperish kind of uh, news thing magazine, um, and we based in Columbus but distributed kind of Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, sometimes Chicago. Um, like we, we loaded up our cars and drove to those cities and, and dropped off copies at record stores and stuff. But um, I imagine that either they sent me a copy or Andy Flick, who was maybe still a Sony College rep, gave me a copy. I, I don't think I bought Wax Static, but I definitely had a copy of it because I wrote a review of it. Okay. Jeff, what about you? What's your personal history with this album and band? Well, um, I didn't get into sponge at the time um in 94 when rotting pinata came out or in 96 when 
Wax Ecstatic came out. Um, it was, you know, definitely a few years later um, that I picked up both records. I mean, obviously, listening to any kind of, you know, alternative rock or, you know, rock radio in that time, you would have heard, uh, you know, the, the hit singles off of Rotting Pinata. Um, and I, I distinctly remember when Wax Ecstatic came out um, and, uh, you know, they were pushing that, that record. So I, I remember that time, but I never got into the band enough to pick up either record at the time. And it was years later that, um, that led me, uh, to do that. And ironically, it was, I, I, it was, I bought both of the records roughly at the same time. And it was actually the song Wax Ecstatic getting stuck in my head randomly for, you know, a good week period years ago that led me to think, gosh, you know, I, I ought to go back and, you know, listen, spend some time with, with those two records from, from Sponge. And that's what I did. Okay. Jay, were you a fan back in the day? I don't remember if you were listening to them or not. I'm mostly familiar with them from, from radio. Um, you know, Cleveland radio played the hell out of, uh, the two singles off riding Pinata mm-hmm. cloud and, and, uh, 16 candles or whatever it's called. Um, this album came out, I was probably, I feel like I was living in B, or just about to move to BG, but um, I remember the single Wax Ecstatic, and I thought it was phenomenal, um, and, and I really liked that song a lot. I ended up buying it, I believe, used several years later, um, and bought the record after, um, something, Pop Sunday or something, it came out in 99. Yeah, New Pop Sunday. Um, so I never owned Rotting Pinata. I mean, the funny thing is, is that I don't remember ever listening to this record, but I know this record. So at mm-hmm. some point, I bought it used and must have had it in the car and listened to it enough to become familiar with it. Um, so yeah, I never seen them live and, and wouldn't consider myself a big fan. But uh, you know, I own a couple CDs. Gotcha. Uh- so my experience is pretty much through radio as well. We had the radio, uh, we had them at the radio station in BG because of them being a Detroit band. Uh, we would often get a lot of um, a lot of stuff from Detroit in Bowling Green and Toledo, and there was a radio station. I think it was was it one hundred seven point nine. The end. Jay, it was in Toledo. Yeah, and they, they played, played the crap out of any band from Detroit that was moderately successful. So like a ton of verve pipe and a lot of sponge and that was like the big fm station in the area and then our own <laughs> college station played um a, a lot of the sponge singles kid, kid rock oh yeah they and... played kid rock too like before <laughs> he was playing with guitars i don't know that they played in sing clown posse but i remember there being commercials for them yep yep so i actually bought the cd new and i got like an import version that had a bonus disc. Uh, you remember back, you know, you'd buy, sometimes you'd buy the albums in the 90s. And I had this with the Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger too, where it came with like a bonus disc of five extra songs randomly. Like, I don't remember, I don't remember it being more expensive. It was just like this random album had an extra CD in it of stuff. So hmm. um, I remember being a, a fan of the first record. I only went back this week and listened to it for the first time in a long time, and I pretty much recognized every song that I heard. And then this album that we're going to talk about, Wax Ecstatic, I remember when it came out, and I remember 
that it had this lead single Wax Static, and it also had we had tagged a couple other songs that we could play as singles because we didn't necessarily stick to a you can only play the the single like we gave like four or five singles if it, if there were worthy songs of being played on the college radio so you could kind of pick from one of those and we were also playing got to be a bore and we were playing um one or two of the other tracks i don't remember exactly which ones have you seen mary was probably the other one uh definitely yeah definitely one of the other ones because that was on a kevin smith soundtrack as well um but i don't think i bought it right away (laughs) i was actually this came out the same around the same time as the metallica load album and uh, I actually stood in line at a midnight sale to get that record uh, for some reason. Oh. I don't know oh why. My. That's a whole oh. other discussion from when we talk about Metallica. <laughs> oh, my. But I, I had limited funds, and that was where I d- decided to spend my money for that month was on the yeah. uh, was on the load record. So Whoa. How'd that work out for you? Um, <laughs> you know, I'm still a big fan of uh, Hero of the Day. Uh, no, I... Uh, well, I re- I read okay. that decision. So, all right. So we've talked about our our personal uh, remembrances and, and experiences with this record. I want to just drop a few pieces of info so that we're kind of um, filling in the audience. The first record, Rotting Pinata, came out August of 1995. Or excuse me, um, not August 1995. It came out in August of 94. And it was released on the work group, which was a subsidiary distributed by Columbia or actually Epic. I guess Epic was the real um, overhead or, or master label. I don't know. Epic and Columbia seem to be the same label, but anyway, this was the original relate was released on the work group. Uh, they did two singles in 94. And then in 95 is when the singles from Molly and first plowed and then Molly came out. And Molly was the bigger single. Molly actually made it to the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart to number 55. And then they made it to number three on the Modern Rock tracks chart. And then they made it to number 11 on the Mainstream Rock tracks chart. So, And and they sold 500,000 copies of the album. So clearly a, a you know successful debut record. interesting note that the drummer jimmy paluzzi was replaced uh somewhere in 1995 and charlie grover is the drummer on the second record so for the okay so for the second album wax ecstatic the band basically got bumped up to the major leagues because the second album comes out in columbia records it's not on the work group so Hmm. clearly the I think Columbia thought that this was going to be a big record. You know, they brought him up to the to the big label for that. And just to give you a little info on the work group, that label only existed for seven years. It was from 1992 to 1999. Has a pretty good 
um, success rate. It's got Jamiroquai, like the big Jamiroquai uh, albums or mm-hmm. album. Uh, Mercury Rev, Imperial Drag, the debut Fiona, Ta- Fiona Apple al- album title. Uh, this album, or excuse me, the first Sponge album, Ronnie Pinata. Um, Eagle Eye Cherry, who had that huge single, Save Tonight. Uh, Len, they had their album with uh, Steal My Sunshine. The, the debut Jennifer Lopez record. So I'm not sure what exactly happened, but basically the two guys who ran work group at one point resigned and the labels folded. So I don't know if they went on to do another label or if they got bought out or everything got folded into Columbia, but there's a lot of like successful records in a short period of time for this record label. So, uh, not sure why they dissipated. So let's actually talk about the record and, and go in to the songs and, the compare it a little bit to the to the first record um i'm just going to go around the room and i want to tell i want you to tell me uh something that you you either liked about the record or something that you stood out for you as a uh, something an interesting note uh if you if if you didn't like anything i guess that's the way you'd want to go but (laughs) something that you liked about the record jay i'm going to start with you yeah i like the guitars a lot um i think it it goes from being very um, kind of noisy, like a lot of feedback bits and s- some cool like angular squealing um, to straight up like um, Rolling Stone style blues and slide. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed um, all the guitar work on the on the record. Was kind of surprised as I went back and revisited it. I didn't remember it being that. Um, that competent when I first uh, listened to the record years ago. Okay. Jeff, how about you? What stood out? Well, I've got um, kind of one positive attribute and then one negative. We'll get, to the, we'll get to the negative in the next go-around, but give oh, me right the on. positive. Okay, perfect. Um, well, to kind of piggyback on what Jay was saying, um, specifically I had mentioned earlier the actual song, Wax Static. The guitar intro to that song is one of my favorite guitar intros to any song um, in the 90s. Like that, I just, that is, I remember it caught my ear back then. And again, it's like I said earlier, it's what kind of came, you know, brought me back to to Sponge a few years later. Um, I just love that that intro. Um, I I love um, the... There's definitely a lot of variety to this record, which I think is really cool. Um, like even the song "Got to Be a Bore," um, you know, which is before that first single, um, has like a really cool kind of a King's X vibe to me, um, which I really, which I really dig. And um, you know, as Jay said, like there's you know there's some blues elements um, to it, so it's a really diverse record, um, which I which I really like. And again, that guitar intro, I could I could probably talk for an entire hour about <laughs> how much I love Jeff, it. So. I'm- I'm so much with you on that. The first time I heard that, I was like, what in the world is this? Like, right. And then when I heard it was sponge, I was blown away. I didn't know that they had somebody in the band capable of something that cool. And it's, yeah. um, it's a big part of the chorus of that song too. It's kind of the counter, right. the counter to the, to the chorus. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool part. Yeah. All right, Chip, I'm going to change this up for you just a little bit. Cause uh, in reading your, uh, your review from Moo, 
you had positives and and negatives but it was quite a bit of negative for this record so were you able to find some positives upon revisiting it so i wrote that review in like september 1996 and i haven't like read that or probably even listened to the record since then but it was funny when i was trying to find the copy of the magazine that had that review i knew what it was going to say before i found it and i feel i I think i feel basically the same way as they did 20 years ago when i (laughs) I reviewed it um yeah there's definitely some stuff i like on it for sure um i mean like like you guys all mentioned that this wax static single was great um, uh, I wrote down to the death of a drag queen. I really liked. My baby said I really liked. Those are the ones that I that I kind of highlighted when I was listening to it again for the first time in 20 years. Um, I did want to say mention something, Tim. I don't know if you saw, but um, I'm trying to put myself in the time frame of when this album came out. Um, in the the last line of my review, I said something about. Uh, a few choice slots on this year's Metal Palooza tour couldn't have hurt things, and I was trying to figure out what Metal Palooza was. Mm-hmm. So I googled Metal Palooza, and it was actually Lollapalooza the year that Metallica headlined. And I kind of, I guess, was trying to be funny and oh, okay, <laughs> called it Metal Palooza. But uh, ironically enough, it's the same. You know, you said you stood in line to get Metallica's load, and Metallica headlined that year, and Sponge was on the side stage of Lollapalooza that year. Okay, so there's your little tie-in. There is the tie-in. <laughs> So I saw them, I actually saw them right before this record came out at the Toledo Sports Arena, which no longer exists, uh, with Candlebox and Our Lady Peace. Our Lady Peace was the opener, Sponge was the middle band, and Lucy had just come out for Candlebox, so they were the headliner. And uh, I remember, I think they played some songs from what would be this record. Uh, but primarily stuck to what was on the Ronnie Pinata album. Um, I think that for me, what works on this record is is similar to what you guys, the guitars specifically on Wax Static and and um, a couple of the other tunes. Um, there's a bit more diversity on this record, which is nice. It's it's both a positive and a negative, but it, it is positive um, in the sense that uh, the first record tends to be a little bit more one note um and also in the production it tends to be a little bit more one note um it was weird and going back to listen to rotting pinata i started to hear like a lot of 80s new wave influence in a lot of the guitars and and in the production like Mm. a lot of echo in the Bunnymen and psychedelic furs sounding stuff that i hadn't picked up on probably because i hadn't really listened to those bands as deeply back in the 90s as i have since um but I mean, you can even hear it on this record when you listen to, um, uh, which track is it? I am, uh, uh, how do you say that name? I am Anastasia. <laughs> that sounds like a like Richard Butler love spit love. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally. When he says the uh, I am, the long mm-hmm. extended I am part, I was totally had the same note.
that works for me. Like I, I can hear the influence, but it doesn't mm-hmm. become overwhelming. In uh, you know, and I don't know how a lot of, how many bands at this point were referencing Richard Butler, <laughs> so it, it's um, it's nice to hear. Um, on the flip side, I'm gonna flip over to some of the stuff that that didn't work for me. In the same way that I like the diversity, I also think that they sometimes go a little too far with the diversity. And I think I kind of figured it out doing some googling. They were trying to make a concept record mm. about drag queens in Memphis, which, if you couldn't tell, there's two songs that have drag queen in the title, the drag queens of Memphis and then death of a drag queen. Yeah. Um, and I, I think they abandoned the concept and I feel like this record is half of a concept record. And then I think in my mind, what happened is they started to make a concept record and they had just gotten bumped up to Columbia and Columbia went, what you're making a, a concept record about drag queens in Memphis. Where is Molly part two? Like yeah. you better write some singles and that's where you get, you know, wax ecstatic. And the, the one that throws me for a loop out of all the songs actually has got to be a bore because that intro part sounds like, Hey man, nice shot by Hey filter by filter. Yes, yeah. it does. And, uh, I, I remember that being the first song that we played at this, at the radio station and me thinking, are they going industrial? Like, what is this? sound that they're going for on this song and i i feel like there's almost someone like it, it would probably drive a radio programmer nuts trying to figure out what to play uh from this album because there's so much diversity in just 10 tracks and um whenever anybody else ran into that issue where the, it, it kind of became a head scratcher well in that song by the time they get to the chorus it's a it's a blues song like it's mm-hmm. a blues riff, guitar, you know, slide guitar. It almost reminded. But when it got to the chorus, I, I f- started thinking about bands like Stone Roses or Black Rope Motorcycle Club. Like it had. So there was that duality where it was like, oh, this is kind of sounds like Filter, and then they get to the chorus and like, oh, this is totally different. So even within particular songs, um, you know, it covers covers some decent ground. I I, I'll, I guess I'll just say on the on your question though. I, I didn't have a problem with the the distance that it covers, um, mostly because I think the production is so adept. Um, Tim Palton actually produced this, which we've talked about in the past. He was in the band The Fags, and he produced a couple Watershed records, I think. Um, mm-hmm. It's just they do a really good job with the production on this. They make it sound kind of organic, raw, open. Um, so when they take chances like it all fits from a just a production standpoint so it doesn't doesn't bother me like nothing stands out so much that it's you're scratching your head um so i didn't mind it too much i'm gonna assume i'm in the minority though for me the the head scratching moment is like i really love the first three songs on this record my purity and then got to be bore and then the, the single wax ecstatic like i think like those three songs like kind of start to build a momentum for me and again as obviously i profess my love for that guitar intro on wax ecstatic which is track three for me the head scratcher is the fourth track which is the drag queens of memphis 
to me, it's not a bad song per se, but it really just for me kills the momentum of the entire record. Like I'm like kind of like after those first three songs, I'm like, yeah, this is like, you know, going to be a rocker. Like this is like, you know, I'm, I'm digging it. And then that song hits and it just for me takes like all of the momentum out of the record. Um, I, I kind of wish they would have had like obviously they can't all be rockers and you know you want to do some ballads or some slower numbers like i wish the i am anastasia song was the fourth track i kind of mm. wish that would have been the track that slowed things down on the album and either taken that drag queens of memphis song off of the record altogether or or re you know put it somewhere else in the track listing but to me that was what like really you know, just took all of the momentum out of that that record. Even when I listened to it, you know, earlier this week, is is that same, like, yeah, first three songs are like really great, gets get you going, and then oh, like just takes the takes the air out of the balloon on track four. Yeah, I totally agree. I like I said, twenty years ago, I wrote that, and I, I thought that again this time. Um, I mean, Drag Queens of Memphis to me, again twenty years ago, and this time around, it sounded like something that should have been on a Black Crows record. Mm-hmm. I thought that and Have You Seen Mary kind of had a to me a Black Crows kind of feel do it. Um, what I what I was trying to what I when I looked up kind of some history of this of this album and the band, um, I know one of the guys that was in Sponge at one point went on to either start a band or join a band called the Dead String Brothers. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them, but they're a very like Rolling Stones country ish mm. kind of band. Um, that guy did not play on this record, but. I would not have been at all surprised had he played because mm. that's what Dead String Brothers sounds like. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a that tune is it's a gospel waltz when you break it down. Like what's going on there? It's kind of like Rolling Stones, Wild Horses, or something, but it doesn't have the chorus. <laughs> so it is definitely a left curve. Yeah, and I think that that's probably you know <laughs> what hurt them a little bit in the uh, sales department is uh you know the first group of people to buy the record were probably like yeah there's some cool songs but then there's like these blues songs and i don't you know unless you were kenny wayne shepherd you weren't doing blues in the 90s uh or or the black crows i guess at this point i kind of would be curious to hear what the full concept of this drag queen album was going to be like i wonder if they had left songs on the table or and there's stuff that didn't get released because there's only one in terms of uh bonus material there's a japanese version of the album that has one bonus track called slower suicide which i've not heard but other than that there's no extra songs i'm aware of and they didn't put out another album until 99 so i don't think that and that's quite a different sound is from what i remember jay right it's like, like a, almost like a power pop record yeah, yeah. So I don't think anything carried over. Did they do this record in Memphis? Uh, no, I, I believe it was done in Detroit because hmm. it was produced with Tim Palatin or Pat Patelin, yeah. however you say his name. So I think they did it up in Detroit where they had done the first record. It's, I mean, oh, by the way, Richard Butler sings on "I Am Anastasia." Oh, wow. <laughs> I just I just was looking through the, the liner notes. I'm like, oh, hey, Richard Butler showed up. How funny that we thought he sang on that, and he actually did. So there you go. That is his vocal doing that part? Wow. Yeah. Huh. So there you go. Let's talk a little bit about 
you know, so this is this is released July of '96, and I looked at the Billboard charts, you know, for around this area, around this era. Uh, the aforementioned Metallica were the number one album. You had a lot of variety. You had a lot of hip hop artists who were doing well. You had a lot of you had Alanis Morissette was still selling a ton of records at this point. You know, she was the number one selling record of I believe '96, even though that album came out in '95. So there wasn't the concentrated uh, guitar rock dominance like there was in '94. Um, in the same way that when Rotting Pinata came out, uh, it was a much a, a varied uh, chart. Um, and you can actually go to uh, uh, you can go online to Google, and they have the actual Billboard magazine. If you go to like the Google Books section and you can look at the scans of the magazine and see the actual chart positions for like this particular week when the album came out and um, see what was out there and, and it, it's all over the place in terms of uh, what was successful at the time so um, and I don't think we have to deal with the I know Eric Peterson brings it up uh, uh, for albums but I don't think we have to deal with the Telecommunications Act at this point in terms of uh, <laughs> dominating the uh radio so can you guys figure out or do you have thoughts on why you think this record did not connect in terms of sales and i will say that chip your review was not unlike a lot of the reviews that i read uh there's a lot of middle of the road reviews for this record a lot of c pluses and b minuses just are going around the room why you think that maybe this record did not live up to the debut in terms of both critical claim and sales. Jeff, I'll start with you. If you have any thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think there are no songs on this record that have the, you know, the, the poppiness and the heft of the two singles off of rotting pinata. And I think, um, that, that, you know, is difficult. I mean, when you're, I don't care what band you are, if you have two songs on a record that are that well known, um, you know, it's, it's in, in a record that follows that up. If, if you don't have at least one song that can, you know, kind of match that as far as, um, you know, popularity or, or catchiness or ability to, to connect, I think that's going to be difficult. And I, I think that's probably what happened to sponge. Again, there are, several good songs on this record um but none that would be able to connect with a wide you know a mainstream you know wide audience um you know like cloud and molly did and i think that that's probably what hurt the sales it was kind of like what was said earlier as far as columbia saying you know wait where's you know molly part two you know well i don't think molly part two is on this record and i think that's probably what what led to its uh, you know, not being uh, commercially successful. Um, again, not a bad record. Probably accurate to get a lot of C pluses, B minuses, um, because there are some good songs on there. But uh, the inconsistency of the of the record and, and there not being, you know, that radio single or two um, was probably you know what led to it. You know, just being kind of a mediocre, uh, mediocre received uh, album. Is it safe to say that? The hook in Wax Ecstatic is the guitar and not the vocal. For me, it is yes. Yeah, I th- I think that's where the problem probably lies. Is that there's there is no vocal hook 
the way that there is with Molly or Plowed. Like, they have distinctive yeah. lines that you remember from those songs. I'm thinking, like, you know, Molly, it's obviously when they do the break and he, they stop and they go 16 candles down the drain. I mean, you remember that. And then right. Plowed, you remember the world of human wreckage line. Uh, I think that's probably the one that probably gets stuck in most people's heads. Um, whereas on this record, it doesn't seem to be that sort of vocal hook anywhere on the record in the same way. Right. Chip thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I still like 20 years later, don't know what kind of band sponge is. I mean, they were pretty diverse sounding. Like I, and maybe that's a good thing, but like, I can't pigeonhole them as like a post grunge or a power pop or a blues rock band. Cause they did a little bit of all that stuff. Um, which makes it hard for me to, to grasp on and, and, like I said, pigeonhole them some way. Um, while we were talking, I, I recall too that like I think their first tour, they were and you guys might have mentioned this on a show at one point. Um, they did some tour and they they might have even headlined. It was them, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, Letters to Cleo, and Fig Dish. And like that's a that's another like really weird foursome to go out like, and then like you know the Candlebox tour makes more sense based on what what i what i thought they were but but again like um yeah i think this just it, it this is not a uh didn't sell a ton and why you can find like i looked it up on amazon before we started and there's like hundreds of copies available for a penny oh yeah i i, I think it just like myself included like i i just couldn't i couldn't figure them out like there was one or two good songs and then the the i i guarantee there's probably somebody out there that loves the blue uh the bluesy black crow stuff and doesn't like the rock stuff and they may, might find those two or three songs to be something mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know and they were a metal band before they were sponge right i think yeah, i picked I, that up in your review and i've heard that other places i actually i have that somewhere i was looking for it before this i couldn't find it but i have a cd they were a band called loud house and um they had it i think Vinny played drums but all the other guys i mean it was it was sponge but then there was a different singer Okay. And Vinny was a drummer in that band. Um, yeah, and I think they were like a heavier, kind of a metalish band. Um, I read some description. Uh, I think they were kind of like one of those weird, like Jane's Addiction meets Nine Inch Nails type of thing, like an alternative industrial band. I'll have to dig that up and see if I can find it. And uh, yes, you see do. What it's all about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jay, uh, Jeff. I mean, Jeff and Chip are both right. I think there's. There's opportunities here to have songs that are as hooky as the hits from the first record, but they're just not quite there. Um, and it's not that the song – I found the songs overall overall to be pretty well structured. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty concise. They're smart. It's just the hook they haven't – they didn't quite get right. And sometimes it's like maybe it's missing a harmony or it's missing a um, – a play on the lyric a little bit, you know, it's just that part of the record consistently as you go through it, it's not as well. It's, it's kind of like they paid attention to a whole bunch of other stuff except for that. Um, and I think they got a lot of other things, right, but they didn't get that part right. And for the band that they were trying to be, that was kind of important to get right. Yeah. Um, I will say, I think it's vastly superior to the first record. Just hmm. going back and visiting the first record, I think the first record is like 
really generic, except for the two singles. I think the two singles are fantastic. I think the rest of that record just sounds like like an Alice in Chains-y kind of alternative grunge band, whereas this is, you know, they're trying to go in different places that are sort of outside of maybe what other people were doing at the time, and that's partially why it wasn't probably successful. You know, I mean, the, the Black Crows, I think, at this time were... Um, really the only band doing kind of bluesy. I mean, there's horns on two of the songs on here, you mm-hmm. know, Memphis style horns. Um, and even they, I don't think at this point towards the late nineties, they were even starting to trip up a little bit. So yeah, I mean, I think in hindsight, it makes, there's no question why it wasn't bigger. You, you um, know, one thing I was just thinking about as, as you guys were talking and trying to think like where they do fit in, actually where they fit in is like in today's world, they, they fit into a, 90s nostalgia MTV act. Hmm. I mean that that's like their that that's the tag you can put on them. Like I said, they played Summerland a couple years ago, and they fit in perfectly with Everclear, Filter, and Live. I mean that was like a perfect bill hmm. because they only played like the hits, and so there was, there was somewhat of a consistency in the, like their six or seven songs that they played on that. Um, you know, they, they played the rock songs that people knew. So um, maybe after 20 plus years, like that's <laughs> they found what they need to do. Well, just I haven't listened to many that I listened to the record after this, but they've released many records since. And if you just look at the covers, like you can tell they're kind of lost. <laughs> like, yeah, like they almost became like a, I guess maybe like a kind of a hard hard rock bar band or something. There's a lot of stuff that's you know tattoos and naked women and yeah, they look like whatnot. bad local band covers. <laughs> and you're like, okay, maybe they just tried to become a rock band, but. Um, I don't, I don't know. I haven't listened to the stuff, so I shouldn't comment. But uh, you can definitely just tell by looking at the covers that there's an identity crisis there. And the band is basically just Vinnie Dombrowski. Like, none of the original members are in the band. So right. they're, they're sort of the rat of, uh, of uh, 90s bands in that respect. Well, except he wasn't the drummer, so it's not I'm Bobby just, Blotzer. I, I'm looking right now. Their upcoming tour dates, they're playing in Amityville, New York, Philly, Brooklyn, Champaign, Illinois, Toledo, Warrendale, Pennsylvania, Taylor, Michigan. So they're, they're not hitting. I think that there's bands like, um, Tim may know this, like like Faster Pussycat comes to Columbus like three times a year and they play a strip mall bar. I feel mm-hmm. like Sponge is the 90s version of Faster Pussycat and playing those like <laughs> on the road all the time, playing any strip mall bar that'll take them. Mm-hmm. People go to hear the two or three hits and... Uh, so they're not they're not playing like the the proper Chicago's, the New York City's, the Cleveland's. They're playing like the suburban strip mall bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you look on like their Spotify uh, collection, there are like random best ofs that clearly are just electron like digital best ofs, and they'll have like four or five covers on them. So you, I would imagine like even when they play these bars, they're probably doing like. A couple of covers that people know, too. I will along say along with, with their originals. I mean, Vinny. When I saw him at Summerland, I mean, the guy's he he still looks good. I mean, he's you know he, he's not. I don't know. He still looks like he could be out there doing three hundred dates a year. Well, and that's the other thing I didn't get a chance to mention earlier, but I looked at their touring schedule back in the time period of when rotting pinata came out and it was very similar to Candlebox in that, that they basically toured 
you know, throughout 94, 95, when that record came out, obviously they had two big singles, so they were pushing those. And they tore it up until, like, Christmas of 95. And then they got to put out a record, you know, eight months later. So I don't know how much time they got to spend. I mean, this is a 10-song record. There's a bonus track at the end of uh, Velveteen, track 10. And then there's one extra song. That's very similar to what Candlebox went through. They toured for a year and a half. They had like eight months to make a record, write it and record it. And, it, you know, we got the second Candlebox record, which is obviously a huge slump compared to the first. And I think uh, this... All right, put the, put the brakes on. I'm looking at their website. 2011 Hits and B-Sides Volume 2 includes <laughs> covers... Inclu- get this. Includes covers of Shoot to Thrill by ACDC. Yeah. And... Cherry Pie by Warrant. No, no, yes, no. I'm going to go listen to that when we're done with this. <laughs> <laughs> Volume 2. Well, it's only six songs long. But yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. My goodness. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, I think this, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, this, this series because uh, the sophomore slump, you know, uh, pattern is not unique to the 90s, but I definitely think it was worsened. So if you think back to the 70s when bands were on uh, an album a year or some were on an album every eight months to six months cycle, the records were so short then that if you think about like the debut, like look at Van Halen's a great example. Like they had a catalog of like 30 songs. They only put whatever 10 on the first record. Their next three records, they had written already. They were done. They just basically had to record the tunes and figure out which ones went together. So by the time you get to the 90s and everybody's, you know, well into the CD format and they're putting, uh, you know, 12 to 16 songs on their first record, by the time the second record comes around, they just don't have any material left. Like, they haven't written anything else. So Mm -hmm. they're like in a... They're in a panic to not only write a record, but they've got to write a CD's worth of music. So you get, you know, I think in this case, they actually did a good job of being concise and keeping the record short. But I have a feeling we're going to review a lot of sophomore records that are, you know, three, four, five songs or more longer than they should be. Oh, yeah. Definitely. what's What's really sad about this record is that it's not a bad record. Like, there's a lot of good songs on it. There's again, like I said, there's no radio hits. So that's kind of why it's easy to see why it didn't do well commercially, but it's not a bad record. Like I almost like kind of, almost kind of feel bad for it in that, you know, it it is definitely a sophomore slump and and easy to hang that, that tag on it. But it's, it's like not, it's, you know, listening to it, you know, 20 years later, it's, it's not a bad record, not a bad listen, you know, 10 songs, not a bad listen. It's a it's an easy listen too. Like mm-hmm. I found myself just quickly getting through with it and, and feeling like, oh, well, there was some cool stuff on there. You know, it wasn't at any point like laboring to get through a tune. Right. Um, I kind of agree with that. I wonder what would have happened if they if they had written Molly Part Two or Plowed Part Two. Like if we'd if we'd be like, oh, that sounds just like the first record. Why'd they copy <laughs> that? You know, I mean, we're kind of yeah. giving them a C plus because it was a little too diverse, but yet. I'm glad they kind of didn't stick with that first album formula. I, I almost feel like the third record was a reaction, kind of like we, we talked about with the Van Halen balance thing and a couple other records where 
like they really a band really stretches themselves and tries to you know be more creative and it doesn't work and then they just recoil and go right back to like all right well this is what people want so yeah. the third record is very much like their attempt at a power pop which may have been you know just thinking about it uh hey let's let's write a bunch of songs like like molly um let's try to be as poppy as we possibly can so this is a good time for us to how i would like to end these episodes is can we redeem this sophomore slump is this something that people should go back to and check out or is this best left in the slump dump i like that a little uh, alliteration there <laughs> the slump dump um nice. jeff should people check out this record or leave it leave it alone I uh, I think this should avoid the slump dump bin. Um, you know, I, I, like I said just a minute ago, like I think this is a good record, um, and I think it's worth um, people checking out. I mean, it's not going to be your favorite record of all time that you listen to, but like I said, it's a it's a good record. And um, in reality, for me, the guitar intro for Wax Static alone is worth the listen. And uh, I would suggest uh, people give it a give it a second listen. You know, twenty years later, that better be your ringtone. That that guitar riff. <laughs> it's going to be now, right? Awesome, Jeff. You got a call. <laughs> uh, Chip, redeem it or slump dump. Uh, candy bars and the vending machine at work are a dollar. I have seen this CD numerous places for a dollar i would definitely spend a dollar for the cd ringing endorsement from chip spend a dollar <laughs> uh, how much is the shipping on that if you get that from uh from amazon it's 3.99 automatically any cd is yeah. 3.99 shipping yeah. but i see this yeah. one i see this one all over columbus and like half price books because every time i pick it up and i'm like do i have this and i can never remember if i have it or not so yeah. I always put it back because I'm sure I have it somewhere, but I actually don't have it anywhere. So I'll probably pick it up for a buck next time I see it. Here's how you fix that. Uh, Discogs, you can put your whole catalog of all the music you own, like tag it on Discogs. And then you can use the, the Discogs mobile app. So if you're shopping anywhere and you're like, do I have that record? You can just go to the app and be like, oh, yeah, I do own that record. I'm sure just like you guys, that would take me months to even get that thing set up. <laughs> if you, uh, They have an app where you can scan with the phone you scan the barcodes makes it a lot easier yeah yeah it's nice it's funny the way i handle that um i'm one of the few the the proud that um still carries around an ipod classic everywhere he goes so i just bring that bad boy into the record store when i'm shopping <laughs> oh, <yeah>. nice <laughs> that'll take a while to get through that thumb wheel <laughs> yeah <laughs> spin spin sore. spin 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 it's like routine for me so it's all good <laughs> jay Redeem yeah. it or dump it? I think it's worth a listen. Uh, I think there's quite a few. There, there's actually probably three or four tunes on here that um, I think are pretty damn good. And I think Silence is Their Drug is a good song. I Am Astache is a good song. I like the song Velveteen. I think it's it's missing a killer chorus. but um, so And then obviously Wax Ecstatic. I, I think um, there's much worse records that we are going to review for sophomore Oh, songs. definitely. I've got some lined up. <laughs> let's just let's just put it out there. Fairweather Johnson, it's coming your way. What is that? It's the second <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish album. Yeah. Oh Christ! 
<laughs> I will not be guesting on that show. <laughs> I won't either. Yeah. <laughs> As it's going to be a uh, one-man uh, roundtable. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're never going to review that. Um, I'm I'm in agreement with you guys. I think that this is a redeemable sophomore slump. Uh, it's got plenty of interesting things going on, even if it's a little too eclectic for some people's taste. Um, I, th- I think that the chances that they take are interesting enough that uh, it's worthy of being checked out. And like we all said, it's just not quite as catchy as what it needed to be. So, so oh, how about this? A follow up to that, to that. Would you pay $15 to go see them do a 20th anniversary tour for this record? If it was only for this record, no. If they were to throw in a few songs from first record, I'd, I'd lay down 7 or $8. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Are they, are they playing at the, the Commons uh, downtown Columbus at a free show? I can not. go see them. They are not. Yeah. Yeah, that it takes a lot to get me out of my house. Let's put it that way. So I thought you were gonna say fifteen dollars to buy the C D, which is probably what it cost when it came out. Oh yeah. Which uh I just saw the Tower Records documentary. Oh, I have that guess, from the I library. It's uh it's it's really good. But that was yeah, one of the it, points that really stood out to me. It was like what what they were charging for CDs and how absurd that was. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great documentary. Definitely worth uh, checking out. It's on my DVR. I'll be watching it soon. Yep. All right. Well, we have redeemed Wax Ecstatic by Sponge. This is a sophomore slump that is worthy of being revisited. Uh, I want to thank our roundtable for um, our debut of the Sophomore Slump Revisited series. Whoa. What was that? Somebody dialing in with a modem? <laughs> uh, Chip, you there? I'm, I'm here. Okay. okay. Uh, Chip. Not my modem. It's not your modem. Okay. 28K. <laughs> 64-bit. Um, Chip, the uh, man who runs kidsinterviewbands.com. You can find him on the interwebs at kidsinterviewbands.com, uh, on Twitter at the same, also Chip Midnight, and then uh, Facebook, Kids Interview Bands. And uh, anything else? Well, well, let me ask you, what you got coming up on the um, series? Uh, I have a request out for a couple of things. We'll see if they happen. I'm hoping uh, maybe Andrew Bird Friday. And um, Alice Cooper's publicist knows who we are and has sent it on to management. So we'll see what happens. Oh, where's he playing? Alice Cooper's playing at the Express Live, formerly known as the LC. The Express Live? Yeah, they sold the naming rights to Express. Yeah. Oh, God. So now it's called Express Live. <laughs> I know, it's so awful. Is, he, get, tour- I, is he touring by himself? Yeah, I think, he, I think from what I can tell, it's an evening with Alice Cooper kind of thing. Uh-huh, okay. But you guys may have seen we we scored what has been our biggest one in a long time with Maynard from Tool and Pussy. Yes, it was a really weird and awkward interview, but um, apparently that's the way Maynard is. So the fans <laughs> seemed to like it. I thought it yeah. was an awkward, but I think people people like awkward. Yeah. <laughs> they like to see uh, celebrities be uncomfortable. But I'll you know a little behind the scenes like. Uh, 
everything you saw in that interview was exactly what happened before and after the interview. <laughs> he was not a real easy guy to talk to and not a very, um, he was all business. That's what we've heard. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, Jeff. Up, Francis. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, you have just recently done an interview with, um, I'm blanking on the name from Hot Water Music. What's his name? Right. Chris Wallard. Yes. Yeah, what? that was um, the last episode that I put out uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, really cool, really cool guy. And um, he, um, besides, you know, Hot Water is still active and still, you know, does things from time to time. But um, in between uh, their times, he's in a, uh, another band on his own um, called Ship Thieves, um, based out of Gainesville. And, um, you know, they had just put out a new record. So I talked to him about that. And um, he was just super candid and. And um, without, you know, really a lot of prompting talked about, um, you know, kind of the beginnings of Hot Water Music and, and you know, why they moved to Gainesville and, you know, just all kinds of stuff that, that I really hadn't anticipated on talking with him about. Uh, and it was really, really awesome. He's a really, really great guy and, and super candid. So that was a lot of fun. Cool. And people can find that at uh... – your website, which is rocketfuelpodcast.com, correct? Got it. Uh-huh. And they can find you on Twitter at the same handle, uh, Rocket Twitter Fuel. is rocket, rocket underscore fuel. I always forget the, forget the underscore. That's right. they got to be cool for the kids with the underscore. That's right. So that's it. I uh, want to remind everybody we're currently running our failure contest. If you sign up for Patreon in the month of April, you are automatically entered to win failures the heart is a monster on double vinyl 180 gram we'll pick one subscriber at the end of april to win that record you have to be signed up for as little as one dollar by april 30th midnight eastern standard time and then you're entered into the contest and if you like what you heard you can leave us some positive feedback over at itunes that's it for jay and tim and jeff and chip We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. It's always